Welcome to The Burning Word. Welcome back to The Burning Word. It has been a hiatus of well over six months here since we've had our last episode, our last series on the politics of Jesus. A lot has happened in the past six months. Uh, A lot has happened personally. I have had the joyous birth of a son, our second child. There's been some exciting developments and advancement in my doctoral studies at Durham. And there's just been a lot going on. There's been a lot going on in the world. There's been a lot going on in uh, ministry life. If you follow me on social media, you will have seen inevitably that a scandal uh, has broken and is ongoing uh, back at the previous church and network that Jenna and I were a part of. And yet, the ministry of the church has gone on. Uh, I've had the privilege of serving a church here in Belfast. I'm currently preaching at another church right now. And I'm just struck by how deeply so many of us are hurting, and yet how deeply all of us need this invitation once more to return to the Word. So I have some exciting news. There is a new study that we are launching into right now with this episode. I hope you've had a chance to see the videos that I'm putting out on YouTube. That's a fun new experiment. I'm just trying to expand this content out to be engaged in a number of different ways. But if you've seen any of the videos, you have realized what we're about to dive into. It is time to explore the Song of Songs. What a mysterious and weighty book. What a a book that you've just probably never studied before. I mean, I have seen a few brave pastors be willing to plow into it, but there's a reason why it is difficult to talk about, as we're soon going to discover This is a book of weight and significance. It's going to take a bit of investment, a bit of leaning in to actually uncover what is taking place. And yet, could we have a more timely topic than sex, than the search for sex, the longing for sex, the hope that sex still holds out to us, and yet the devastation that sex has wrought across our culture to each of us personally? I'm sure that as I go into this study, it's going to surface a lot of things for you. I'm aware of that pastorally. I care about that. And yet, I don't think we can wait any longer without having an honest, biblical conversation, not just about the do's and don'ts of sex, not just about the culture wars of sex, not just about all that's going wrong with sex in our world, but about a vision from God for what sexuality is for. And so that's what I want to get into with you. I want to unpack this book, this beautiful, weighty song that invites us into God as we ask, what is sexuality for? So, without further ado, let's dive in. So by way of introduction, let's talk about some of the things that have been going wrong with sexuality in our culture. Back in 2016, early 2017, the story broke about Harvey Weinstein that has had reverberating repercussions throughout the past four years. It was a story about power, a story about power manipulating those underneath it for the purposes of sexual satisfaction. And yet what was so twisted and so cruel about these stories 
was the diverse way in which power was either forcefully, violently used to manipulate sex, or at other times, how power was the vehicle itself that promised much, that offered rewards, that turned sex not into something that was beautiful, something that's relational, something that's intimate, but rather into something that was transactional. A transaction of sex for the person who is in power's pleasure and for the person underneath them to either have a hoped-for opportunity, a hope that a door could open. I mean, that was just devastating to read the stories of victim after victim who suffered under Harvey Weinstein. But that, of course, would suggest that sexual brokenness is just taking place out there. Oh, no. If you have walked in evangelical circles, as I certainly have been these last few years, we know that the failures and brokenness and abuses of sexuality have been sitting right there on our doorstep. I think particularly around the same time of Bill Hybels, founder of Willow Creek Community Church, the church I used to work at for three years, right as he neared retirement, is hit with this wave of allegations about inappropriate behavior, potential sexual misconduct, all of which he denied and still denies. I mean, what was so incredible about this story was that Bill had adamantly taught integrity, claimed integrity. In fact, there's a book down in my mother-in-law's library that's literally Bill Hybel's book on, I want to say it's called Bold Love. And in it, on the back, there's a blurb that says something like, Bill Hybels teaches you about the beauties and uh, the holiness of biblical sexuality, right? This is what characterized Bill Hybels' teaching ministry. He led others. He was put forth as an expert on biblical marital love. And after an investigation took place, finally an independent investigation, the conclusion was that in all likelihood, all of these inappropriate relationships had in fact taken place. It's devastating. It's devastating to see a leader you admire fail so miserably around something that we sense is so important. That's why we care so much when sexual abuse breaks as a news story. And yet, it's devastating to, to sort of lose that hope for yourself. That's what's taking place when a leader collapses like that. You sense that if that leader can't hold this biblical, holiness, beautiful, compelling vision of sexuality that they were trying to champion, that they were claiming to have for themselves, well, then what hope is there for those of us who are broken, who are working out our own stories, who are wrestling with the fallout of our own brokenness? be it sexual or otherwise. Of course, in addition to Bill Hybels, you have to mention as well, just in this past year, Rave Zacharias, the world-renowned apologist who built his ministry on, again, a bedrock of transparency, relationship, and trust. And all the while, we discover that there was this side interest in massage parlors where he would groom and manipulate those giving him massages into spiritually-laden confessions before pressuring them to offer him sexual favors in response. I honestly feel sick every time I read the details of any of these abuse situations, but I'm really only scratching the surface here of what I know are countless other unveilings that have taken place both on a national level, I mean, the stories go back well before 2017, but that also have taken place on a personal level. Again, I mentioned at the start the scandal breaking around my former diocese involving the misconduct of a sexual abuse allegation that has now exploded 
into a revelation of all these other misconducts that have been taking place across the diocese. I think of the Southern Baptist Convention, the explosion, explosion of revelations, well over 700 stories of sexual abuse that took place in the SBC in the last, I think it was 20, maybe it was 40 years that the Houston Chronicle uncovered. Not to mention Sovereign Grace Ministries, uh, Rachel Den Hollander's experiences under Larry Nassar and all of the other U.S. gymnastics fallout that is still taking place as Simone Biles steps back from the Olympics. I mean, it's just everywhere, isn't it? This brokenness around sexual abuse, this brokenness when power manipulates sex for its own gain, and the fallout is this fragmented explosion across our culture. Yet, as I think about the brokenness of sexuality that's clearly there, that's clearly pressing up against us, I'm struck that there's also an immense amount of confusion when it comes to sexuality. Maybe this is one of the reasons why the brokenness of our sexuality feels so prominent. In the past five years, there's been this increased social connectedness that's allowed us now to hold people accountable that we never might have held accountable before. So this is what's taking place in movements like Me Too or Church Too, where stories are being shared. And it's possible that we can even cancel someone whose power was protecting them before. But there's been this catch in the wave of increased accountability. You see, while our awareness of sexual brokenness has been increasing, our vision of sexual expression has simultaneously been expanding. The central tenet right now is anyone who's paying attention could tell you in mainstream culture is that everyone should be free to express their sexual preference and desire in whatever way they want, usually with the only qualification being as long as there is consent. Now we're going to talk about consent as we move forward because it's actually a really fascinating and important concept that our culture is just in the middle of reckoning with. But instead of talking about consent right now, I want to lean into confusion because on the surface, this feels right in our cultural moment. I even feel coming from a conservative evangelical background, this sense in which the old religious and puritanical restrictions that seem to hover like a controlling cloud over our sexuality is it needs to be pushed back. There, there needs to be some sort of newfound freedom or reflection or even just conversation about what is taking place sexually in our culture right now. However, the problem, the catch, if you will, of this current moment we find ourselves is what happens when the freedom to express yourself runs up against the freedom of another. Or worse, what if the way you want to express yourself sexually seems off to the invisible sense of justice our culture seems to share, or at least Twitter seems to share. The result, I would argue, is that we are confused. I'm not saying that you somehow need to agree with me. I'm not saying that you need to align with my theological position or that I need to align with your theological position. For us to come together and an acknowledgement that right now, because everything has been shifting, everything has been changing, all of our 
hunger and desire culturally is to expand sexual expression, to expand sexual possibility, to expand the freedom and individuality that each of us have around our own sexualities. The danger and the problem is when that sexuality, as it's pushing out, suddenly hits up against the safety, the well-being, or the wholeness of another. Let me give you a recent example that I was fascinated to stumble across. So back in May, Vulture ran this story about how the director, Zack Snyder, was forced to recast an actor, Tignataro, when fellow comedian Chris D'Elia had several allegations surface against him about sexual relationships with teenage girls. So this was for the movie The Army of the Dead. I didn't end up watching that one. I don't have anything against Zack Snyder, though. I thought uh, the Justice cut was good. But there were a number of things that baffled me about this story when it came to Chris D'Elia, the allegations against him, the Army of the Dead, and about Zack Snyder's recasting of him. The first was the lengths Zack Snyder and Netflix were willing to go to to get clear of these allegations. Snyder had already finished filming and thus had to digitally erase Chris D'Elia from the entire movie only then to shoot on green screen and digitally reinsert Tig Notaro into every scene. Can you imagine how complicated that would have been? When asked how much money was spent, he gestured towards several million, though some estimates I saw put the figure up near 10 million. 10 million dollars. Think about what you would do with 10 million dollars simply to erase someone from a film. So what, you may be wondering, did Chris D'Elia do? Well, last fall, an unnamed plaintiff sued him because she claimed that at the age of 17, she connected with Chris, who is 34, via social media. She then claims that she was invited to a show in Connecticut where the two engaged in sexual activity before the show. Chris D'Elia is a comedian. She says this sexual activity happened before the show. If that's not stressful enough, Connecticut technically has a law of consent at the age of 16 for sexual activity. So, this is confusing. Then afterwards, Dahlia sought and received over 100 photos from her that were sexually explicit. And whenever she refused, she claims he psychologically punished her. Those were her words. So the case charges Dahlia with child pornography as well as engaging sexual relationships with a minor. In response, Dahlia resisted the allegations by saying, quote, I do know how it looks with all the stuff that's been said, but I stand by the fact that all of my relationships have been consensual and legal, and that's the truth. However, as the article continues, Dahlia notes in this almost confession-like posture, this line, I'm quoting Dahlia again, he says, sex controlled my life, and I have a problem. I need to do work on that. End quote. Okay, so there's just so much going on here when it comes to our confusion about sex. And just to be clear, in case I need to be, I am horrified by Krista Elia's behavior. I am devastated, devastated that this unnamed plaintiff at 17 years old has felt compelled to bring legal charges against him. It seems like The legal case will not stand because the relationship took place in Connecticut where it's legal. Um, I mean, 
This is just horrific, terrible, brutal stuff. And yet, yet, what's fascinating to me is that understandably as a result of this case, Christaelia was canceled and Netflix felt so compelled to remove themselves from Christaelia for his sex as a problem with a 17-year-old that they were willing to spend $10 million to green screen cut him out of the last movie he had already starred in. And if, if you're not tracking with me in the insanity of this, picture this. If this girl, who was 17 at the time, was literally only a few months away from turning 18, would we have felt compelled to cancel Christalia and would Netflix have needed to spend the millions that they spent? Are we okay with sexual coercion, the, the pressure to share images and clearly what seems like sex addiction on Christalia's part? I mean, at least that's from what he's saying. He seems to be acknowledging that. But is his bar, is his standard that he's defending himself with that all of the sex he's participated in is legal and consensual? Is that the bar for healthy sex when it comes culturally to the freedom for us to express our sexuality however we want. Again, I'm not trying to get into culture wars here. I'm not trying to define anyone's biblical vision. I'm not trying to get into an overly prescriptive mode to tell you how sex needs to be. No, I'm trying to highlight that our culture, if we let our culture continue to guide us when it comes to sexuality, wherever you fall, on a theological position of belief. Are we going to make it if legal and consensual is the only bar for sexual expression? Is our culture going to flourish? Are we as human beings going to flourish? If you think I'm making up this confusion, consider as a final parallel that in 2017, the movie Call Me By Your Name, starring Timothy Chalamet, the wonderful Timothy Chalamet, as a 17-year-old boy, uh, chronicles the story of Chalamet's character being initiated into a sexual relationship with the 24-year-old character played by Army Hammer, who, it's worth pointing out, is much older than 24 when he plays the character for this film. This film, when you look it up online, I'll be honest here, I haven't actually watched it. It's not from even like a moral puritanical stance. There's just something in me that struggles that Hollywood can put the label of the genre coming-of-age romantic drama on this film that chronicles the same type of relationship taking place between Christaelia and her plaintiff. And this film, Call Me By Your Name, would be widely lauded by critics and would be nominated by the Academy for Best Picture, Best Actor, and would win Best Adapted Screenplay. So where I'm going with this is to bring us back to the Song of Songs, (laughs) to bring us back to the scriptures. Far, far too often, when it comes to the Bible and sexuality, we're focused on passages that list restrictions and prohibit behaviors. You probably know the passages I'm thinking of, particularly those six texts that engage with homosexuality, whether this means you take a position in the culture wars around these passages or that you lob shame at those who hold a different stance than you, 
these conversations are clearly important. Don't hear me say that we don't need to talk about those six passages, talk about the culture wars. I'm ready. I'm here for that. But my greater pastoral concern for you, who's taking the time to listen to this, is that when it comes to the brokenness and confusion we have around sexuality, if I simply get on this microphone and start listing prohibitions and telling people why they need to wait for marriage, it's not going to be enough to stir you, to compel you, to grip you with the voice and word of God that wants to speak to you, that wants to speak to all of us, that wants to address both the overly rigid, conservative Christian whose puritanical culture has devastated so many people. I got a chance to watch Pray Away on Netflix, and it's heartbreaking to hear stories. It's heartbreaking to sit face-to-face with those who were subjected to praying the gay away and who were devastated because of it. And yet, on the flip side, I'm not convinced our culture knows what it's talking about when it simply says, go express your sexuality however you feel free and fit. And just be aware, we will cancel you if we don't like it down the road. What we need, what's missing, is a vision. A vision from the Word of God, something that transcends this moment, that transcends our confusion, that can even transcend the brokenness of abuses and scandals that have been taking place in Christianity and outside of Christianity. We need a vision from God of what love and intimacy and, quite honestly, hope when it comes to what sex could be for. Okay, so that's my cultural introduction. But if that's what's going on, if that's what we're struggling with, if these are the questions we're asking, why Song of Songs? What do you need to know about the Song of Songs if we're going to turn to this book? We've got three things. First thing to acknowledge when it comes to the Song of Songs is that the reason why you have not yet read it, the reason why it's so hard to read, is because the Song of Songs is poetry. Now, poetry is challenging at the best of times. Can I hear an amen from anyone who survived English lit class? And yet, it's not necessarily just that the Song of Songs is poetry that is going to make this book so challenging. It's that the Song of Songs is actually Hebrew poetry. So if English poetry is hard enough with our rhyme, with our schemes and structures, Hebrew poetry is going to add another layer of complexity through the translations through the different meter and understanding of what rhyme schemes are doing in the text, and ultimately from just a a whole different world of symbolic cultural images that would have resonated back then that may not resonate today. So just be aware as we turn into this, you're going to stumble across some poetry, and poetry is going to take work. But I promise as we walk through this, you're going to start to see even though some of the poetry may or may not connect with you, I mean, it may not really get you going to know that your eyes are like doves to the beloved. But be that as it may, poetry has this possibility because through its densely selected, carefully constructed interconnections and layered themes, you're going to find this poetry is going to sing sometimes. When the poems begin to sing, that's when when love begins to emerge, not just as a as a handbook, a list of do's and don'ts, restrictions or prohibitions. But there's going to actually be these images, these visions of what love and even more than that, intimacy 
looks like. The song has the possibility, as one wonderful Old Testament scholar, Gordon Wenham, would say, of teaching you how to see the world around you. Poetry at its best is trying to shape your imagination. And so the Song of Songs is going to offer you this vision, shaping you through its poetry, the way that love and intimacy can take place. Okay, so let's talk about the second challenge. If poetry is the first, the second challenge to the Song of Songs is what to do with Solomon. I don't know how interested you are in these things. I don't know how deep you've gotten in them, but there's quite a bit of controversy when it comes to biblical scholarship, Song of Songs. What do you do with Solomon in the Song of Songs? It's clear from the first verse, Solomon's name is mentioned, technically in the Hebrew, it says these are the Song of Songs which are of or for Solomon. And then there's two key references throughout the songs to Solomon himself. So Solomon will be mentioned twice. Some take a pretty hard line that Solomon is the one who's writing or, or is the person, the subject, who the songs are about. So Solomon is the beloved. Others, understandably, have resisted that line of interpretation, mostly because Solomon, as you well know, was not really all that highly regarded when it comes to his marital sexual intimacy life. I mean, the man made a bunch of mistakes and would go on to have his own string of disappointments and abuses, and it would be a pretty painful sore point in his kingship that would ultimately cause the entire kingdom to collapse. So it's difficult to see Solomon as this exemplar of what love and intimacy and true biblical union is meant to look like. Be that as it may, I I tend to straddle the fence in these things as best I can. I try to listen to both camps and figure out what's going on. I think following Tremper Longman, who's a highly regarded Old Testament scholar, has done a lot of work on the Song of Songs, I'm inclined to think, just so you know where we're going with this, that Solomon very well could have been involved in these songs. I mean, it's kind of like trying to say Shakespeare was not Shakespeare. I mean, who else could have been writing Shakespeare? I, I really struggle with that uh, when it comes to historical criticism. I know some people say Shakespeare, Shakespearean plays were written by a bunch of different people. But it's similar today to me, to someone who would try to suggest that someone other than Lin-Manuel Miranda was actually responsible or the genius behind Hamilton. I mean, I just don't see it. it it's so big. It's so sweeping. It's hard to picture someone else. And that truly was the character of Solomon. I mean, he's he is this clearly gifted, talented author, wisdom source that was well known across the ancient world. And yet, yet Tremper Longman tends to suggest that whatever Solomon's involvement in this was, it's less helpful to think about the Song of Songs as the story of Solomon, story of one of Solomon's marriages. And it's so much more helpful to see that the songs are actually a compilation of songs and that they were written intended to be songs for us. So this isn't meant to be a story per se, although we'll notice there's some themes and there's definitely a sort of narrative arc to the themes as we unpack the Song of Songs. But it's probably more helpful as you look at the Song of Songs to hear them as this incredible compilation of the best songs reflecting on love and intimacy that were compiled in Solomon's court. If you're tracking with me, 
what that will mean is that we're going to avoid trying to get overly historical, overly prescriptive, because at the end of the day, these are poems, these are songs. And yet we're going to do our best to ask, why were these songs brought together? What are these songs saying? And we will, of course, take a look at why Solomon is an important figure, an important theological character when it comes to the narrative arc of what the Song of Songs are doing. So that's our Solomon problem. One last fascinating problem, which if anything gets me energized when it comes to studying the Song of Songs, is this question, what is the Song of Songs trying to say to us? Now on the surface, if you just picked up the book and read it, let's say you even lived in ancient Israel and you started reading the book, you would of course notice off the bat, these are love songs. They're songs, so there's poetry taking place that are intended to demonstrate to us this relationship between a beloved and the lover. That's how I'm often going to refer to them, the lover and her beloved. But what's interesting and what I need to note for you from the start, because it's going to matter as we interpret these songs together, as we let them wash over us and shape our imagination. The truth is, since the beginning of biblical interpretation, all the way back to when the rabbis first started writing down their midrash on the scriptures, what we find is that the rabbis and the early church were entirely convinced that the Song of Songs was included in the scriptures because when it comes to this relationship poetically described between the lover and her beloved, all of these early interpreters were convinced that when we listened to this relationship, we weren't just meant to think about human love, the plane of human sexual intimacy, but rather what was taking place between this woman and this man was actually meant to point us and to teach us about what is taking place on a more communal, global, cosmic scale of the relationship between humanity and God. So when we read about sex in the Song of Songs, we're actually reading about the relationship between what it means to be human, human beings, and the transcendent, all-knowing, all-powerful, all-creative God who wants to be in that kind of relationship and union with us. This is, when you really think about it, an extraordinary thought that sex, the act of sex, the union of sex, is actually pointing us to God. It's kind of a mind-boggling thought. It's kind of a dangerous thought. In fact, it has been dangerous. Sex, as is clearly known to anyone who's looked into any cultic practices be they contemporary cultic practices all the way back to the ancient world, sex was often associated with worship. It makes sense. Sex is one of the most powerful physiological forces and experiences a person can have. That's why it's so dangerous and why it's so powerful. And yet, even for all of the dangers that this might get abused, and that's why I think so much of the Bible is doing a lot of really intentional heavy lifting to guard and to protect and to safeguard the relationship of sexuality and to even distance God most of the time from sex. But here in this one book, this unique book, we're given this extended reflection, really the extended reflection on what intimacy in sex 
is pointing us towards. And what the early Jewish rabbis all the way through the early church would argue is that the intimacy we find in sexuality is actually pointing us to our need for intimacy and union and reconciliation into oneness with God. So, if that's a hard thought for you, you're struggling with that, if that sounds a little radical, I'm not saying that we're going to look under every nook and cranny to come up with as many bizarre and extreme allegorical expressions of sex as metaphors and analogies for God. That's not what we're going to try to do. Uh, Sometimes the early church, sometimes the Jewish rabbis can get very creative and imaginative for how the two breasts of the woman are representing the Old and New Testament in Jesus's new covenant with his bride. That's not necessarily where I'm trying to take us, though we will listen to those kind of interpretations. Rather, the point I'm trying to get at is to follow this thread, which if you look back biblically, is there from the beginning, this thread in which Adam and Eve come together in the garden in one fleshness as they come together in the garden in relationship and intimacy with God. When they are cast out of the garden, that intimacy is fractured, it's broken. There's now separation and exile, a sense of estrangement that needs to be restored and healed. And as Israel is called, called out of Egypt, as Israel is loved, God is going to say that he wooed Israel in the wilderness as they waited for their promised land, as God, we're told over and over again, would dwell with them, within them, within Israel, through the tabernacle, and then finally through the temple. And then especially, I mean, these will of course come to mind for you, but how else do we explain the prophets who had no problem, no problem giving the vision of God who was horrified to see his bride his beloved Israel being unfaithful to him. How do we mesh the, the vision, one of the primary analogies, sacramental connections that Jesus makes between us as the bride, the church as the bride, and himself as the bridegroom? Jesus is telling us the intimacy, the sexual union that takes place in a marriage, that is a sign a sacramental sign pointing you to what's supposed to take place between humanity and God. And finally, one of the most audacious moments, in my opinion, in the Pauline epistles is when Paul has this incredible turn of phrase where he's going on about the relationship between a man and a woman in marriage. And Paul at one point is talking about their relatedness. He's talking about the sacrifice needed in love, the mutual reciprocity taking place in submission that he's sort of working out between a man and a woman. And then almost on a dime, he says, this mystery I'm talking about, of course, is not simply that of a man and a woman, but the mystery is that of the church and Christ, the bride and the bridegroom. What all of these voices are saying is what I think the early interpreters of the Song of Songs got right. This book is trying to tell us that our longing for intimacy is actually a longing for God. So as we unpack the Song of Songs, I'm going to give you one recent interpreter, Robert Jensen, called The Three Layers, to just hold in mind. Jensen is a prominent theologian. I think he does a good job in his commentary on the Song of Songs in unpacking this. The first layer Jensen notes 
is the layer of the text, is the layer of the poetry itself. At some points, at really all the points, we're going to have to unpack what is this poetry doing? What is this text saying? How is this text working together? But the second layer underneath the first layer is the layer of human relationship in sex. And here's what I want to suggest to you. This is poetry. It's going to take some work to get into, but each of these episodes, I'm going to do my best to unpack a theme, a theme that's sort of coming out of these poems in each chapter, themes that are often being tracked across the book as a whole. And these themes are going to be themes on sex, the human relationship of sex. And if you pay attention to these themes, I think you'll notice insight and direction for how you can pursue intimacy here in earthly relationship with others. And this is both going to be marital intimacy. If you're pursuing sexual relationship in marriage, this book is going to give you insight. It's going to offer you hopefully some new understanding. It's going to offer you some direction on how to pursue that intimacy in a more holistic, humble, holy way. And yet, I think what's going on here as we learn about sex, even if you are not yet married, I know a lot of you won't be married. I know a lot of you may have experienced brokenness in sexuality, whether it was brokenness in a marriage that's now become a divorce, brokenness just outside of marriage, as you've experienced anything from relationships that have ended, tough relationships, bad breakups, all the way to sexual abuse. And what this teaching on the human plane of sexuality can do is it can help, help us comprehend what is taking place in sex so that we can better understand the intimacy we need with each other outside of sex, the intimacy that we're trying to protect so that sexuality doesn't get broken or abused, and the intimacy that can actually bring us clarity into the culture's confusion around why we're all longing for this and why it just seems to go so wrong. So as we talk about that second plane, the human plane, inevitably where it will take us, what I hope to touch on, draw your attention to, and remain rooted in, is a sense in which the third plane is that of God himself, the God of the universe who created us for relationship with himself. The Augustine quote, I love this quote, it's going to just keep coming back to us as we go through this. Augustine looks out and says, you, O Lord, have created us for yourself and our hearts are restless until they find rest in you. What Augustine was seeing and pointing to was this sense in which all of us long for sex because all of us are longing for intimacy. And all of us are longing for intimacy because something about the way God made us knows that we will not find rest until that intimacy with God is restored. Apparently, there's this quote from G.K. Chesterton. Uh, I found out in digging into it that he didn't actually say this quote, so forgive me as I use it still associated with him. I think I've discovered technically someone who's done digging on this points to the novelist Bruce Marshall, who has a character in one of his plays. I've never read Bruce Marshall. Character in Bruce Marshall's play actually said this around the time of G.K. Chesterton, but here you go. The quote is this, every man knocking on the door of a brothel is looking for God. I think that's what this third plane is gesturing towards. We are all looking for the intimacy that only a restored reunion with our maker could provide. And so just as all the money in the world can't buy you happiness, as all of the abuses in the world demonstrate sex can't buy you happiness, there's something deeper. There's something more important. 
there's a deeper longing sitting there within your own heart. Maybe that longing right now is already even being stirred. And I think if you return with me to the word, we can see how God created that longing in you, the longing for intimacy, because that's an intimacy God actually does want to provide. So whether or not you're in a sexual relationship right now with a spouse, in a sexual relationship outside of marriage, intentionally celibate, not in a sexual relationship, feeling even now the question of, does this matter? Is this for me? My answer to you would be yes. We need to return to this song to hear what it's trying to sing. So I realized that was a lot of ground to cover. Our other episodes probably aren't going to be this long. But I do want to now take you into the Song of Songs. There's just so much here. There's so much goodness here. I think this first theme in our first chapter is going to really connect everything that's been surfaced, all of the challenges and the confusion that I've been highlighting. So here's how the songs open. This is verse 2 to 4. It says this, Let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth, for your love is better than wine. Your anointing oils are fragrant. Your name is oil poured out. Therefore, virgins love you. Draw me after you. Let us run. The king has brought me into his chambers. Okay, so that was just two verses, verse two to four. But a few things to note are already fascinating. First, I love when it comes to the Song of Songs, the songs opens from the perspective of the woman who will be the heroine of the entire songs. In fact, I think this woman in the songs is actually too often ignored when it comes to female heroes of the Bible. Our expectation is that at this moment, the ancient patriarchal society that was surely repressive is going to lay out a male-centric vision of sexuality that was going to involve some sort of demure passive, willing-to-please woman who's just waiting around for a man to tell her what to do. But instead, the Song of Songs is going to introduce us from the start. The first voice we hear when it comes to sex is going to be the woman. And this woman is going to be full of desire. Now notice here, I'm not talking just about sexual passion or sexual pursuit or some sort of fantasized sexuality, just limitless expression. No, I'm talking here about a far deeper desire, a desire I would argue is a desire we see from the woman, not just for the act of sex itself, but for the intimacy that is the ultimate goal of sexual expression. So notice she is unhesitant and unyielding in expressing what she wants to this man, to the beloved. She's going to say, let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth, for your love is better than wine. Notice there the sense in which she initiates, but then forces ownership from the reciprocal pursuit. There's going to be this connection first in the kisses of the mouth that's going to involve all of the senses of taste and will immediately evoke to her this incredible sensation of wine and yet something love that is even better than wine. I would note that for this woman, there's no qualifier. There's no moderation. There's no hesitancy about what is appropriate or about what level of physical contact should be adequately expressed. I mean, these aren't negotiations of consent. Instead, 
She tells him she wants him to kiss her because his love is better than wine. Notice in verse 4 then that she's going to proclaim, Draw me after you. Let us run. The king has brought me into his chambers. I love that there's this urgency and immediacy to her. There's a, there's a depth, a passion to her desire. She's almost demanding the need to be drawn close now. She's saying, don't hesitate. Let us run. Now, that final part of the verse, the king has brought me into his chambers, brings up an interesting literary note. Often the songs is going to describe love with royal imagery. Some people have confused this to think that the man being described here might be King Solomon, which, of course, as we've already pointed out, is possible. But it's probably missing the point of this immediate image. That when she says, let the king draw me into his chamber, the king has brought me, he's beckoned and welcomed me into his chamber. What she's doing, the lover, is naming and anointing the beloved with royal qualities, with a kingliness. In fact, if you think about it, what's sort of beautiful about this image in which any time the woman is going to enter into love, she's almost going to start elevating it as like, man, this is a royal, kingly and queenly affair. And the beloved is similarly going to respond by saying, you are my queen. There is none like you. What's sort of powerful about this royal imagery is that when you think about a wedding, a wedding is, in fact, as royal as most of us will ever get in the attention and in the lavishness that's poured out upon us. Have you ever thought about that? Like when you go back to your wedding, that was an event. Everyone was there for you, even if it was small, even if it was just, just your family standing around you. Literally think about the processional that takes place in a wedding. I mean, this is the same kind of image if you watched the crown that was taking place in the royal anointing. It's the same cathedral moment holy before God. It's mirroring a kingly and queenly attribute. And it's the one time in your life when all of the lavishness that you can gather, and again, whether it's, it's your simple white dress that's surely the nicest dress, simple suit, nicest suit that you own, or if it goes all the way up to bouquets of flowers, seated tables, banquets being thrown in your honor, what's being communicated is that love is a royal affair. Isn't that so good? I mean, when you enter in to the bedchamber, it is a kingly and queenly event. The Bible is giving this sort of powerful blessing that the way intimacy is meant to work here between the lover and the beloved is that it's meant to be this micro-expression of kingly and queenly qualities. I love here how C.S. Lewis's imagination talked about the sons of Adam and the daughters of Eve as kings and queens in Narnia. And I think the same kind of expression is taking place here in the songs. Anytime we see the lover naming her beloved as kingly, the the beloved naming his lover as queenly. So in verse 4, what we're going to find in the second half of the verse is that this new character will be introduced. Most commentators think that these, if they were royal love songs, they were probably performed in the kingly court. And so there's a sense in which you can almost picture that a crowd of a chorus 
probably because we're told often that these are the young women, the young virgins of Jerusalem. It's not meant to be a derogatory thing. It's just meant to be innocent onlookers, perhaps uh, not yet experienced onlookers. But it probably was these, these professional voices that would come in with a song to accompany the song being sung back and forth. These were actual songs being sung back and forth to each other between the lover and the beloved. And yet the idea of these friends that we're about to hear from is that they're witnesses, they're onlookers, they're, they're giving both approval and validation of everything that's taking place here. And there's even a sense, because there's a communal aspect to this chorus, that, that the community is looking on to this event and offering something. This isn't meant to be voyeuristic. That's why the songs don't really have the chorus interact with the inner workings of the bedchamber. Instead, the chorus is going to sing about the pursuit that's just taken place between the lover and the beloved. And this is what they're going to say. We will exult and rejoice in you. We will extol your love more than wine. Rightly do they love you. It's beautiful, isn't it? As the woman pursues, but then forces a reciprocity of initiation and pursuit from the beloved. The witness of the community, as these two celebrate the, the kingly and queenly clash of each other's love into lavish, lovely, better than wineness, is that the witnessing community is going to say, we will exult and rejoice because your love is more than wine. So if the Bible is affirming then the passion and the purpose of the woman's desires, it is not naive, thankfully. Thankfully, this, this isn't going to just be a fairy tale about how great and gravy all kingly and queenly expressions of love is. Instead, almost immediately in verse 5 to 6, I think these, these notes are hard to catch when you're just working through the book on your own, but track with the story sort of unveiling as the songs are being extended before us. Almost immediately in verse 5 to 6, we have a new tension, a new drama be introduced. The woman is going to say, I am very dark, but lovely, O daughters of Jerusalem, like the tents of Kedar, like the curtains of Solomon. Do not gaze at me because I am dark, because the sun has looked upon me. And then the woman's going to say this, My mother's sons were angry with me. They made me keeper of the vineyard, but my own vineyard I have not kept. And like I said, this is one of those confusing passages where if you were reading it on your own, you'd go, what is happening? What is going on? What is the sun? And now there's these brothers and vineyards being talked about. But if you slow down and read this carefully, there's actually some real psychological insight taking place here. The woman is going to begin by noting her insecurity. She talks to the chorus that we've just heard from that was just singing over her and the beloved. And as she addresses the daughters of Jerusalem, she acknowledges that she herself, the lover, is lovely. It's beautiful. That's the word in Hebrew. But she is concerned because she is also very dark. As she continues, she says, the sun has looked upon me meaning quite literally that she has been badly burned by the sun. Context is, of course, helpful here. In Israel, as with most ancient societies, tans were not the fashionable foray that they are today. Instead, to be pale was a sign of wealth, opulence, and beauty. To be dark-skinned indicated that you worked in the field 
which we find out is increasingly true for this woman. But even more concerning, the, the woman says, my mother's sons were angry with me. That is her brothers, right? That's mother's sons, brothers. They made her the keeper of the vineyard, perhaps suggesting that they had in fact put her in charge of the large family estate, which meant, as she notes, that her own vineyard, she says, my own vineyard, I have not kept. Now, wine and the vineyard are going to be important throughout the songs, and they're actually one of the most obvious and easy tip-off symbols. Whenever wine or vineyards are mentioned, there's normally a couple of meanings taking place, normally at least two meanings, if not more, are sort of operating on the potential for the poetic, symbolic imagery being conveyed. Here, the play on images is that while she was busy keeping the family's vineyard, meaning perhaps she actually was being put to work in the field, caring for her family's estate, her own vineyard, that is her own personal beauty, or perhaps even her own sexual allure, had been compromised. Now, here's what I love about these two verses. Just in the shortness of verses 5 to 7 in Song of Songs 1, that's describing the sunburntness the inner family dynamics, and the disappointment of the woman now with her own insecurity and beauty. They're going to capture what shipwrecks almost every relationship I've ever had the chance to counsel. The problems that these verses surface are insecurity and interference. As the songs open, we're met by this overflow of the woman's passion and delight. And yet, before we even get to hear the beloved have a chance to speak. It's always important to notice the flow of words, who's controlling the song. We find the woman already begins questioning herself. It's not the man or even the chorus at this point that are being critical of her. It's the woman who relentlessly embarks on the need to critique herself. It's devastating. Beauty is going to be such an important theme throughout the songs. It's a theme we're going to unpack more in the next chapter. But for here, I just want to draw attention to the fact that the shadow side of beauty is always insecurity. Beauty has all of this potential to allure us, to draw us in. In fact, every single person made in God's image is clearly beautiful. When we say things like beauty is in the eye of the beholder, what we're driving at is that beauty is inherent within all of us. If that's true, Insecurity can also plague all of us unless it is dealt with directly. If you look back on every relationship you ever had that didn't work out, what caused the relationship to collapse? Often, of course, there are obvious challenges. There's struggles that you can name now. But normally, normally the distance that grows between two people begins with insecurity either strongly on one party or more likely in both parties. It's insecurity that starts to turn the relationship inward on itself, to turn one from looking outward to looking in at themselves. Insecurity is going to get blustery when your boyfriend or girlfriend doesn't text you back quick enough. Insecurity is going to explode in response to that gentle critique from a friend telling you you need to keep time better. Insecurity can cause us to end up in miserable marriages because we become convinced we must criticize our spouse before they can criticize us. Insecurity is the great disruptor of our desires. 
but not just insecurity. Notice here that there's also this intriguing element about insecurity being met by the brother's interference. Most commentators are unsure about what exactly is taking place when she says that her brothers were angry with her. It could be that we're meant to read the brothers as a jealous type. Having just heard this expression from the woman of her passion and desire that she has for her beloved, they jealously confine her to work on the family vineyard. Or perhaps we're to read the brothers as the overly protective type, concerned by the amount of passion they hear in the woman's desire. They hope that by containing her desire to hard work in the field, maybe they can slow down her pursuit of the beloved. I'll let you figure out whether their intentions were good or were insincere. But I can't think of many relationships where this sort of interference hasn't also had a part to play in the pain and the brokenness and the fracture that can take place. I think especially about family dysfunctions that will whisper highly critical thoughts into the ears of their engaged child that's going to taint the love of the marriage for the rest of its life. I think about the relational dysfunction of friends who can offer bad counsel, jealous tactics, or just plain neediness that throws off what otherwise could have been a good and flourishing thing. I love that the songs is going to acknowledge all of this from the very outset. I think the point the songs are making is that this pursuit of desire is going to be a challenge. You thought just because desire was stirring in you, that if you pursued it, you would find what you're looking for. But the first realization when it comes to intimacy of any kind is that just because you have desire for it doesn't mean that you yourself or outside interference might not work against fulfilling those desires you started with. Even those like family and friends will potentially not be trustworthy in your pursuit of desire. I think of all the brokenness I unpacked at the start of this episode, and I think of how misdirected and insecure the desires of those men in power were. In fact, it had to be, it had to be the insecurity of a powerful person who knew the inherent instability of their power to manipulate and coerce women into sexual favors, sexual relationships, just sexual anything with them. I think of how much interference is taking place right now in our culture as others attempt to tell you the right way to express yourself sexually or the wrong way for you to express yourself sexually. I mean, part of our confusion is that everybody is speaking into everyone else's sex life. Yet, so often, our pursuit of desire is not ready to confront the powers of insecurity and interference that are going to begin to press up against the core relationships of intimacy that we're meant to foster with each other, be it in friendships or in marriage, and the core relationship of intimacy that we're meant to foster with God. I mean, why is it that so many of us struggle so much to approach God regularly? Why is it even now that you might have this sense, this perpetual shame that just seems to undergird your sense of God's stance or posture towards you? Is there not insecurity welling up in you? I mean, that's not a holy confidence, is it? Confidence that just entrusts yourself, 
knowingly, lovingly, willingly to God? Is it not interference? Are there not so many other tasks, demand, work, distractions that are pulling you away from God? So if, if this is where we are, if we are this tangled mess of desires, if the song is starting to surface for us that we begin with this passionate pursuit, but we inevitably find ourselves stuck up against the insecurities and interference of others, where do we go with our desires? Is there any hope for desire in sexuality, in relationship? Here's where the song goes. Here's the direction. In verse 7, the following verse, the lover is going to say this, Tell me, you whom my soul loves, where you pasture your flock, where you make it lie down at noon. For why should I be like the one who veils herself beside the flocks of your companions? Did you catch the beauty of that turn? There's all this insecurity, this inward draw of desire to stop focusing on her beloved and to become fixated in on herself, but she resists it. And instead of fixating her gaze on either herself or on the demands of others, she's going to turn once more to the beloved and she's going to ask him, tell me where you are. Tell me where you pasture your flock so I can come to you. Don't make me be like one of those other women who is veiled walking the fields. I mean, you can just picture shepherds' fields. There would have been various shepherds all around. There would have been women milling around in various relationships, some wives, some fiancés, some girlfriends, sort of trying to initiate, connect some pursuit. And the woman, the lover is saying, don't make me be like one of these non-connected, non-committed, non-loved partners who has to veil herself. Instead, tell me where you are and let me come to you. I realize all this talk about desire can be rather challenging for many Christians. For a number of reasons, strong swaths of the Christian tradition seem to suggest the goal in life is to repress desire, to stifle desire away in order that we can live this version of a self-controlled, upright, and holy life. But in this precarious moment of the lover in the Song of Songs, in fact, I would argue in any precarious moment of love, in any crisis of faith, what you need is to press in to desire. That desire could become reclaimed. I mean, this is the moment of truth for this woman, isn't it? As soon as she's hit with this realization that she might not, and she really might not, she, she might not be beautiful, she might be burned by the sun, she, she might be disrupted by those trying to make claim on her life, and yet in this moment of truth, she sees what she needs is not repression, is not a sense of stepping away or pulling down the desires she began with. No, she needs to lean in to her desires. She must pursue them again. She must call out to the one that her heart loves. There's this quote by C.S. Lewis you've likely heard. But as I was working on desire in this passage, I came across it again and was struck that he too sees desire as the heart of the Christian faith, as did so many other significant mystics and theologians. But C.S. Lewis is going to say this in The Weight of Glory. It would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink 
and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered to us, like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. I think this is at the heart of desire in sex. I think this is at the heart of desire in intimacy. I think this is at the heart of desire when it comes to relationship with God. Our desires are not too strong, but they are actually too weak. We fear our desires' strength, and so we are the ones who go about repressing them, ignoring them, numbing them out, fooling about with drink, sex, and ambition, when infinite joy and intimacy with God and through God with each other is offered to us. As Lewis so rightly says, we are far too easily pleased. Do you see it? Do you see the invitation of desire in the songs? The invitation to lean back into the longings you have. I know some of you. Some of you have had longings for relationship that have been bitterly disappointed. Longings for sexual fulfillment that have been bitterly disappointed. And let me be clear here. I'm not talking about some sort of cheap sexual satisfaction or some sort of cheap sexual climactic moment or experience. No, I'm talking about what's underneath those longings. If you can really get honest with yourself, you have a desire to know and to be known. You have a desire to love and be loved. The problem with our desires is not that they are too strong, but that your desires have actually been too weak to find the true source and destination they were pointing you to. There's more to say about this. Oh, there's so much more for us to unpack. There's so much to pastor here, to really sit with and explore with some good friends over a long cup of coffee, over a nice walk, over a really substantive meal. I mean, those are my favorite ways to unpack these kinds of desires. You're going to need a community to unpack them. Even your marriage itself, if you are married, these desires are so powerful. They're so damaged so often, and yet they're so important. This is where a therapist, a mentor, a close friend, or a group of friends can really be helpful to hold and to listen, to resist that insecurity and interference, and to help point you back to the God you're longing for, point you back to the intimacy you long to share with each other. But I'll end by finishing with this chapter, taking you to the beloved's response to the lover's desire. I love this. The beloved, when he finally gets a chance to speak, is not going to be overly demanding. He's not even going to be rushed. Instead, the beloved is going to answer, there's really no other way to say it, wooingly. The beloved is going to woo the lover in almost playful tones. He's going to say this in verse 8. If you do not know, O most beautiful among women, follow the tracks of the flock and pasture your young goats besides the shepherd's tent. It's almost as if the beloved is saying, why don't you follow the tracks and come find me? Come, he says, come look for me. Come explore. Come out of your hiddenness. Come out of your insecurity. Come out to me. You know the way. 
You can follow the footsteps of your desires. You know where I'm waiting to be found. You can almost see here in this moment what the early church was getting at. I mean, how could this not be God? God, the one who came looking for us. God who sought Adam and Eve in the garden. The same God now beckons us to himself. He invites us down the path of desires to search him out that he might be found, to seek him that we could be restored to him. And the song as it moves forward is going to have this beautiful complimentary back and forth. The lover is going to pour words of affirmation over the beloved. Yes, I want to come find you. I want to come be with you. And then the beloved is just going to start pouring back words of affirmation and delight over the lover. We're going to get into their conversations moving forward in different chapters. And yet for here, I just want to draw your attention to the close of chapter one, where the lover is going to say, Behold, you are beautiful, my beloved, truly delightful. Our couch is green. The beams of our house are cedar. Our rafters are pines. So the chapter closes with the lover and the beloved now locked in embrace. Likely, as Tremper Longman will point out, likely sexual embrace, sexual union out on a couch of grass with trees as their walls and pines as their rafters. It's often in the poetry of the song's nature that's going to come around to surround and encompass moments of sexual union, almost as if the man and the woman and their sexual union are now restored once more to the shalom of the earth. I mean, this is what I think is happening in the songs. I think the reason why sex is often associated with nature, with vineyards, with flower, with blossoming, is because the song sees back in the garden, we were naked and unashamed. The closest we get to the garden today is when we, with another person, can entrust ourselves momentarily to once again be naked and unashamed. And yet, even in the the fleetingness of those small moments, we're glimpsing the longing you and I have to be at one and whole with our Maker again. If you could reconnect to your desire when it comes to sexuality, not just your desire for sex or the experience of sex itself, but the desire that's underneath the desire that's underneath those longings. Can you see God? Can you see intimacy? Are you tracking with this bigger story? If there's any direction I want to leave you to ponder this week as you wrestle, as you wrestle with the Song of Songs, as you return to the Word, as you wrestle with the Song of Songs, as you return to the Word, and as you attempt to let this song sing over you, is there something more taking place beneath the currents of our culture's obsession with sex? Is there something more taking place beneath these strands of heartache and pain interconnected and really interwoven 
with those strands of hope and joy and possibility that you have seen in your own sexual life? Is it possible that desire is the current that is flowing in sexuality? And that if we can be wise and discover where that current was intended to flow, the union of man and woman before God, the union of humanity and God restored once more in the garden, we might actually be able to get clearer on why we all long for sex so much and yet why sex itself is never going to satisfy the deeper desires of our existence. This week, as I close, I pray, may you find in the stirring of love that what you really need is reunion with God. May you find in the renewing of your desires that your gaze ceases to be inward and that instead you may once again fix your gaze outward on your beloved. And may God, the giver of our desire, be the one who woos and beckons your heart back with his love again. We have only just begun, but until next time, this has been John Perrine with The Burning Word. Grace and peace.